Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about two 16th century saints that we remember this week, St. Martin de Porres and St. Charles Borromeo. Hear more about how both lived simple lives and serve as models for living the faith today. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions about suffering that existed prior to mankind and more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again for gracing us with your presence. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you doing the beginning of November? Uh, Delightful, yeah. Well, hey, we're going to be talking about a couple different saints today, including St. Charles Borromeo, who is the patron saint of bishops. So happy feast day tomorrow. But I was kind of wondering, do you have a saint that you consider the patron of you as a bishop? Um, not really. I mean, there's different bishop saints that inspire me and I ask for their intercession. Certainly the apostles in particular, St. John, but, um, there's great bishops. I, St. John Neumann, uh, was Bishop of Philadelphia. And I would say St. Charles Borromeo because I went for two years. I attended St. Charles Borromeo seminary in Philadelphia. So I really learned about him and and I think he is really a great model for bishops today with the challenges that we face. All right. Well, maybe before we get into him, because his feast day is tomorrow, today's feast day is St. Martin de Porres, which we have yet to talk about him, I don't think, on the program. So would you mind sharing a little bit about St. Martin de Porres, and then maybe we can get into St. Charles Borromeo? Sure. We'll do a chronological order for, of feast days. That's that's good. You know, um, and we have a parish here in our diocese uh, under the patronage of St. Martin de Porres in Syracuse. So maybe some of the listeners are from that mm-hmm. parish. And, um, you know, it's a, he's a popular saint. I, you know, when I celebrate confirmations every now and then, not infrequently, there'll be a candidate who chooses St. Martin de Porres. Now, there's two St. Martins, one of St. Martin of Tours, who uh, was an a bishop in the early centuries of the church. So that's different than St. Martin de Porres, who was a religious brother. He wasn't even a priest. And he was born in Lima, Peru in 1579. And he was a mulatto. His father was Spanish and uh, his mother was a freed slave. And his parents were never married. So he had dark, dark skin. Martin had dark skin. His father pretty much abandoned the family. And uh, so the mother and Martin and and, uh, he had a sister. They were left pretty much in poverty. So he had a very humble beginning. And uh, he became the first black saint of the Americas. So uh, I find his uh, his life. In a great model of virtue. He didn't have a lot of schooling. And when he was 12 years old, he became an apprentice to a barber. So he's the patron saint of barbers and hairdressers. Now, back, yeah, yes. and back in those years, back in the 16th century, a barber not only cut hair, but also learned basic medical skills. So that that's an interesting thing. We would never today associate barbers with with doctors, but um, 
But anyhow, he didn't get a lot of money, make a lot of money, but, and what he did make, he would give away to the poor. He was very, uh, from an early age, very committed to the poor and to the sick. He tried when he turned 15 to join the Dominicans, but there was pre- uh, prejudice and discrimination back then. As you know, he, as I said, he was a very dark complexion. And uh, so he really had to plead with them to let him enter, to live in the community. And he said he'd do anything, whatever menial task they had, he would do. So he had a great faith. And um, eventually the superior allowed him to enter and and he did like the most menial tasks in the community. And he was allowed to wear to live there in the priory and to uh, even wear the Dominican habit. But some of the brothers in the community weren't happy about this. And he was verbally abused and mocked and all that. And But he was always um, a man of forgiveness. Um, he was very, very humble, a man of prayer. And anyhow, after a number of years, he took, they allowed him to take vows. I think he was nine years in the community and he took vows as a, as a brother, a Dominican lay brother. Um, one of his responsibilities was to give alms to the poor, which was something he loved to do. And because the community didn't have a lot of food or money or even clothing, he would go out into the streets and beg from the rich to so that he could help and the community could help the poor. And he was very successful in that. Um, so he ended up really assisting a lot of poor people. And um, he was like the good Samaritan. Like if he'd ever saw anybody in need, he would stop. He would see what they needed. He would give of himself to help them. He would beg for them. So they started to call him Martin of Charity, Martin of Charity. Of course, at this time, the slave trade was very strong. So when the ships would arrive from Africa, oftentimes they'd have these slaves, these um, prisoners, they would need medical attention. He'd get on board the ship and uh, he would try to, to serve them, to help them, to beg for them as well. I mean, his holiness was was very evident, and all this he was came from his love for God. He uh, he was a man of great prayer. He would spend sometimes whole nights in prayer. He would spend a lot of time in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. So that's where his strength co- uh, came from to go out and care for the sick and the poor. Sometimes he would upset the other Dominicans because he would bring a homeless person back into the priory and give them his bed to sleep on. And, and sometimes these were, these were poor people who had disease or had sores on their bodies, and he would clean their, their wounds. And, and um, so they then had a, a, an epidemic at one point, and he brought a sick Indian to the priory for medical attention. And that was going against what the superior had said because there was a pandemic epidemic. They weren't allowing people from outside to come to into the priory. I think it was the bubonic plague. So Martin was, was challenged by his superior, the prior 
for violating the rule. And I, I love what uh, Martin's response was. Uh, Martin DePoris says, forgive my error and please instruct me for I do not know. I did not know that the precept of obedience took precedence over that of charity. <laughs> uh, so I think the superior probably didn't like that response, but it was a, a true response because charity is, of course, the greatest virtue. Martin always wanted to be a missionary in a foreign land, but he never really left Peru. He uh, spent his whole life there. He'd also take care of the brothers in the infirmary because of his medical knowledge. And he helped to found an orphanage and a hospital, the first hospital in Lima, Peru. He died on this day, November 3rd in 1639, and thousands of people, rich and poor, attended his funeral. He wasn't canonized a saint until centuries later. It was 323 years later that he was uh, canonized. It was Pope John the 23rd, St. John the 23rd, canonized Martin de Porres in 1962. He became very, very popular, such a holy life and um, really an inspiration for the Dominicans, but for, for all of us of, of prayer and of love for the poor. Well, and I think whenever we think of saints in general, and maybe even Dominicans specifically, we might think of these kind of powerhouse theologians and these really intellectual people that wrote a lot of books. And, and so maybe that's why they're more popular is because we have so much to learn from them and about them. But then you have people like St. Martin de Porres, who maybe we would think of him as somebody more simple. You know, he didn't, doesn't have any great writings that, that right. at least that I'm aware right. of, you know, but that just lived the faith and, uh, maybe had a slightly different mission than a St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Dominic, you know, as far as serving the poor. And, but it's what we're all called to do as well. Exactly. It reminds me of um, the Congregation of Holy Cross right here in our own diocese that so many great intellectuals, uh, professors, etc. I mean, it's a wonderful order, great missionaries. But their only canonized saint up to this point it was a humble doorkeeper, St. Andre, who right. was also a brother, not even a priest, just like Martin uh, de Porres. All right. Well, going from today's feast, maybe we can take a look at tomorrow's feast, which we mentioned already is St. Charles Barmeo, uh, another parish here in the diocese that, and school. Yes, one of our largest parishes in, uh, in Fort Wayne. So happy feast day to Father Tom Shoemaker and to the um, all those at at St. Charles. His uh, associate is is Father Dan Kale and Father James. Who so there are three priests there, and they have a large school, a very good school, and I'm sure they're celebrating. In fact, I have confirmation there this week. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you mentioned he was a bishop. What else do we know about St. Charles Borromeo? I think a lot of people don't know uh, uh, much about him. He was a great Archbishop of Milan, which at the time and probably still today was the largest diocese in Italy. 
but a very interesting, interesting life. He was uh, born in 1538. So we were just talking about Martin de Porres. So they, these are both saints of the 16th century. His background is, is really, I think, pretty interesting. He was from a wealthy family. Uh, in fact, um, a noble, they were part of nobility in Lombardy, uh, which is the state or province where Milan is located. So, um, so his was a very well-to-do family. His mother was from the house of Medici, very wealthy, powerful family. And his father was a count. He was born in the family's castle, which is on Lake Maggiore, about 36 miles from Milan. And he received tonsure when he was just 12 years old. Tonsure means is when back then they became a cleric. So at that time, you know, there were there was a lot of wealth in the church. And um, his uncle is his uh, father's brother gave him the income from a very rich Benedictine Abbey. But it's interesting, even, you know, so young, St. Charles uh, really didn't want that money. He already had a, uh, like, was was attracted to the gospel. And anyhow, he attended a university. He studied civil and canon law. He had a slight speech impediment, so they kind of regarded him as pretty slow. His father died, and Charles was, I think he was in his uh, early teens, and uh, he had an older brother named Federico, but Charles was requested by the family to manage the affairs, uh, the domestic affairs. In any event, that's pretty much his early life. What was really amazing is his uncle on the mother's side cardinal was a cardinal, Giovanni Angelo Medici who was elected Pope. And his name as Pope was Pius IV. So he ordered his nephew, Charles, to come to Rome. And he appointed him to a position uh, at the Vatican and created him a cardinal. Now, he was not even a priest. Okay, he was just a, a a young layman, and you know his uncle, who was the pope. So you know that made him a cardinal. That's what we call nepotism, where you give these special favors to to family right. members. So that's not a good thing. But uh, and he was only, I think, twenty one years old. Um, can you imagine? And he was given a lot of of um, responsibilities at the Vatican and the governance of the papal states and supervising religious orders. So so he lived there in Rome for a, a few years, I think four years, but he was very different than the others. He lived in austerity. He wasn't into any of the riches. He ordered the members who worked in the curia to wear black. And he was, um, he really helped his uncle and organized the last session of the Council of Trent. The important uh, reforming council, because this was after the Protestant Reformation. And so he was very important. I mean, imagine organizing that last session. And he was involved in creating the catechism that came out from the Council of Trent. Now, his older brother died, and um, 
his family wanted him to return to the lay state and to marry and have children so that the family name would, would continue, but he wouldn't. He stayed as a cleric and got ordained a priest. Um, it was interesting. He, in, in, in uh, September of 1563, and then just a couple months later, he was ordained a bishop. He became the Archbishop of Milan. At that time, one of the big problems is bishops didn't always live, often did not even live in their dioceses. So the, the state of the church was a mess, and a lot of reform was needed. So he became the, a prominent leader of what we call the Counter-Reformation. And he decided he would leave Rome, uh, that it was important that the bishop live in his diocese and not just receive income from the diocese, which is what a lot of other bishops did. So his uncle, Pius IV, allowed him to do that. Now, his uncle died not long after St. Charles went to Milan. So he was already doing reform in the church in Rome. He, was, um, he became close friends with uh, Philip Neri, St. Philip Neri, who had founded the oratory. So, so they, were, they worked together at, at reform. But when he went up to Milan, Milan was in terrible shape. The practice of the faith wasn't good. There was a lot of corruption. So he was devoted to implementing the decrees of the Council of Trent and to reform the church in Milan. And it's interesting that last session of the Council of Trent that he had so much to do with was basically is when they approved a lot of disciplinary actions because the other two sessions were more on the doctrinal stuff, especially against uh, some of the Protestant teaching, but it hadn't really addressed reform in the life of the church very much until that third and final session that uh, Charles Borromeo had so much influence in. But then he became very zealous in Milan to reform the church, both the clergy and the laity. You know, they had problems where a lot had, uh, a lot of people, including priests, had drifted from the teaching of the church, uh, corrupt religious, just a lot of, you know, problems in monasteries. I mean, it was a mess. So he really was very, very energetic in correcting the abuses. And he knew that oftentimes when there are abuses in the church, it's because of problematic clergy. So among the most important things he did was establish a seminary. That was one of the decrees mm -hmm. of the Council of Trent, that they had to do a better job in educating future priests. So he led the effort. He established seminaries. He also uh, established some colleges. And uh, so he said, yeah, we need to prepare men who, who really know the faith, who have a, a strong spiritual life, who are going to have the pastoral zeal and charity. And he also was instrumental in beginning the work of the Confraternity for Christian Doctrine, CC, what we call CCD, uh, so that young people would be instructed in the faith. And he brought order and discipline to monasteries and religious orders. You can imagine he got, he was opposed. I mean, whenever anyone tries to reform, you know, those who don't like it are going to try to um, stop it. 
And with the religious orders, there was one group called the Brothers of Humility. What a name, because they weren't humble. But in, in uh-huh. Italian, they're called the the uh, Humiliati, Brothers of Humility. They were a penit- supposed to be a penitential order. They had a lot of monasteries. And they, they pl- plotted to uh, have Charles Borromeo killed. And when the when uh, Charles Borromeo was in his chapel, he, actually they uh, he got shot, and uh, one of them shot him, but he survived. Huh. Uh, then you know, as if he wasn't busy enough, there was a famine, uh, and he was doing a lot to organize and and help the poor, getting food. As a matter of fact, he used up a lot of the church's money to feed people, and that went into debt, but. You know, he was so committed to the gospel. And then they were hit with the plague and in Milan and Italy. And uh, he organized care for the, the sick and, and ministry to the dying. And he got the whole church rallied. So, you know, we just went through the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm thinking about how great an example Charles Borromeo was because all the wealthy and the the leaders, like the um, the civil leaders and the so-called important people, they left the city because they wanted to get away so they wouldn't catch the plague. And Charles Borromeo would not leave. He insisted that the mm. priests and others stay to care for the sick. Churches were closed uh, like they were here for a little while during the pandemic, but he would organize masses outside, like in the in the square, so people could come to their windows and worship. There were a lot of priests who died in the plague, and he organized orphanages and hospitals for children. Uh, the orphanages of ch- for children who lost their parents in the plague. He sold all the stuff in his in his house, the archbishop's house, to pay for the care of the poor, and that plague. Uh, killed a lot of people. Um, there's that story of there was a whole stack of corpses and uh, there was someone evidently at the top of this this pile of, of dead bodies who was still alive and, and was dying and needed the last rites. And uh, Archbishop Charles Borromeo climbed up the dead bodies to anoint him. So what an impressive wow. uh, bishop he was. Uh, in the midst of opposition, he was successful in the reform. I mean, the church in Milan started to flourish with holy priests because of good seminaries, well-formed catechists through the CCD program, kind of a return to the gospel. And um, I find it amazing that he did all this in so short a time because he died at the age of 46. He died at the age of 46, Wow! but almost single-handedly brought about this great reform. Uh, two of his, I always found it interesting. He had uh, devotion to a prior bishop of Milan, who is a saint, St. Ambrose, one of the fathers and doctors of the huh. church. Uh, and he also had great devotion to St. John Fisher the Bishop of Rochester in England, who was the only bishop under Henry VIII who didn't abandon the church. 
he stayed faithful like Thomas More and was martyred for the faith. I'm not sure if he had met John Fisher or not. I'm going to have to look that up, but but that was one of his heroes. Yeah. Well, this is great because I've heard, you know, bits and pieces of both of these stories, uh, but not so much depth and fascinating lives that they both had. So people should definitely look into and pray for the intercession of St. Martin de Porres and St. Charles Borromeo as well. So again, St. Martin de Porres feast day is today and St. Charles Borromeo is tomorrow. So happy feast day to our, our parishes that are celebrating that as well. And happy feast day to you, Bishop, for tomorrow as a patron saints of bishops. Thank you. And you know, his Episcopal motto was humilitas, humility. And he was, uh, oh. he was truly a humble servant of the Lord. And it all began through an act of nepotism. Isn't that amazing? But he didn't fall into yeah. the trap that so many can fall into. Um, so we pray through their intercession, uh, two great saints that we celebrate this week. Well, and maybe he chose that motto to remind himself that he needed that humility because could very easily, when you're from a family of power, to to fall back into that, and he needed that reminder. So, right, good for him. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at two six zero four three six ninety five ninety eight. We have some listeners submitted questions about evil in the world before humans existed. This is a good one. I'm looking forward to your answer on this one. And new evangelization opportunities since COVID. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and I will be reading the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first one comes from the Holy Cross College text line. Someone wrote, I have a question for Bishop Rhodes regarding suffering. Bone records and fossils have shown that dinosaurs and prehistoric mammals experienced bacterial infections, bone cancers, etc. How can the effects of original sin cause the suffering of creatures that existed and therefore suffered millions of years prior to mankind? Or, since God has no temporal restraints, did he preemptively apply the effects of the fall prior to it even happening. And if that is the case, the universe would already be disordered by the time humans were around, and there would be no Eden or place untouched by the effects of sin. I do not understand this, quote, natural evil, end quote, that existed prior to mankind. That is one of the biggest questions uh, you could ask. And it gets to the whole issue of the problem of evil, which we've talked about on this show before. We've talked about uh, evol evolution. We've talked about Adam and Eve. We've talked about monogenism versus polygenism. 
and this whole relationship between faith and science. So, so we're really getting back to this, and I'm happy to do so. Uh, I would like to preface it by saying we're talking about mysteries here. No answer is going to be okay. totally satisfactory. It's a question that's, that theologians and philosophers and scientists have wrestled with for centuries. And as we learn more through science about the evolution of, of the universe, you know, these kind of questions arise. So then it becomes how do we interpret certain passages of especially the book of Genesis, but even some things that St. Paul says about original sin. It's something that I would wish I had more time to study. St. Augustine has a lot of good things to say, although he wouldn't have had the scientific knowledge back then that we have now. Uh, another would be Father Pierre Tejard de Chardin, famous Jesuit, whose way of looking at this I find quite satisfying. And of course, Pope Benedict XVI also has, um, in a sense, spoken approvingly of the work of Tehard de Chardin. But the idea of how do we reconcile what we know in the Bible from the Bible about human origins with the present evidence from science, and we've talked about this already. Um, and so I won't repeat. We have that in in uh, earlier episodes, but I don't think we talked about this specific question, and that has to do with the disharmony in the world prior to the sin of Adam. We have to recognize that even before humanity arrived on the scene, suffering and death were part of reality. Okay. There was suffering. Mm -hmm. There was death, not for humans, but for animals. And of course, there was, uh, there were earthquakes and other things that we call physical evils that were part of the world before um, before man arrived, and including many many uh, species going extinct. You know, dinosaurs, but a lot of other things before man ever came on the scene. Death existed. So there was this, um, whatever we want to call it, sometimes we speak of it as physical evil or material evil. I'm not sure it's always good to speak of it as evil because, I mean, this is different from moral evil. So it's really a, a privation of the good. That's how St. Augustine uh, de described it. So when you look at... Uh, Would it be safe to say pain, pain as well? right? Because... The world was in a state of becoming, okay? that You see this in the uh, catechism. We say in Latin, in fieri, F-I-E-R-I, which means uh, the universe is in a state of, or process of becoming. Um, so that's very clear. I mean, that's what evolution is all about. So if you have a world that is in this uh, condition of becoming, in this process of becoming, you're going to have things like suffering and death. I think what is most convincing to me is this, and it's an assertion of Father Tehard de Chardin. Evil 
this physical or natural evil is the necessary shadow comitant of finite being. Now, I have to obviously explain what that means. Hmm. Um, in creating, it's, you know, God is, is uh, being itself, okay? So in creating the world or creating, what he creates is finite. It's contingent. So I'm getting into some philo- philosophical uh, categories, but think of it this way. God, the God created and his creation is not himself. Okay. He didn't create himself. Hmm. So the creation necessarily is not infinite like God is. It is finite. It is dependent on God for its very being. And it's in this state of becoming, this process of becoming, he created out of nothing. And it's because of this, I would, uh, I would say, that we have the existence of these things that we call physical evils or natural evils. This is kind of uh, essential in the fact that, one, that it is finite, okay? that it involves change and movement. There's this lack, this privation, in the sense that it is finite creation. It's not infinite being. So there's change in the realm of creatures. Because if it wasn't, if it was a perfect world, then it would be an extension of God. It would be God. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. Um, this is kind of like a necessary side product. And we could say, okay, God is all powerful. He can do anything. And that's true. We believe in the omnipotence of God, but there's certain things that are logical contradictions. For example, we don't believe that God can create a square circle. That's a logical mm-hmm. contradiction. Well, I think we could possibly say, that God can no more create a world that doesn't include the presence of privation in some form, then he can create a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. So what he creates is necessarily finite and has a lack, has a privation. So a perfect world would, as I said, not really be different from God. This is kind of the best explanation that I have found. Does it totally satisfy? No, I think this is a mystery. But I don't think we can deny that there was suffering and death in the world before Adam. And that, I believe, can be reconciled with the, with the account in the book of Genesis. And it depends on how one interprets St. Paul when he writes about original sin. I believe he's talking there about humans. The other thing about with the creation of human beings, when we talk about there being in in the material world, this change in the realm of creatures, in the realm of human beings, this is freedom. 
Of course, that freedom was abused, violated by the sin of our first parents, and humanity has been affected by that. So in a way, I think there is a parallel between the lack or it, it, within the material world, animals, et cetera, and, and the, uh, but also in the human world of, uh, of men and women created in God's image and likeness who are both uh, body and spirit. So when we say that there is, the world is in this state of becoming, uh, we're talking there's a lack of perfection. And I'd say with human freedom, humans also have a, uh, this deficiency. And of course, Christ comes. And he is the perfect man. He is the redeemer. The whole world is ordered to Christ. All this multiplicity in creation is moving towards a final endpoint, which is Christ and a new heaven and a new earth. So without having Genesis in front of me right now, the story in Genesis of the world being in harmony until Adam and Eve sin are we to take that as allegory then, or? I mean, there's various biblical interpretations of paradise, the Garden of Eden. Does that really refer to things at the beginning, or does it refer to things at the end? The es is it really all about eschatology? Some uh, biblical theologians mm. interpret it that way. But in any event, in paradise, it doesn't say that the whole world was that paradise. Okay, so that garden represents a certain degree of perfection, and Adam and Eve lost paradise. And that's, you know, and then St. Paul develops the whole idea of the sin of Adam and Eve, and it's transmitted to us. How does that reconcile with what we know from science? I think that's. That's the question. Well, I would say that um, the deeper thing here is that even that is that we know from science that there were these things before Adam and Eve existed. Animals would kill each other, for example. <laughs> um, you know, sure. sea life would do the same. Animals went extinct. There was this. Um, this privation. And I think the whole idea of the Garden of Eden is, is really, uh, it's so important. It's so beautiful in showing us what God's plan, ultimate plan is for us and whether or not we cooperate with that plan. You know, we have the example of, of Adam and Eve who, who disobeyed God. They lost paradise. And um, how we today, I think, can, can learn from that. Um, the, uh, it's interesting when you read the, uh, the book of Genesis. I mean, why would God say to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth? You know, there was obviously something that needed to be subdued. In other words, we cooperate in God's creative action. And we can even apply this to environmental and ecological issues today. All right. Well, 
this could be a whole course <laughs> probably if we we kept on going in any deeper but uh, maybe on a little bit easier question we had another listener ask what are some opportunities for evangelization that covid has produced i think the, the thing that immediately comes to my mind in hearing that question is the use of of technology and media for evangelization mm -hmm. um, because there was that uh, necessary period where people had to stay home. And I think it really helped us help the church to um, be more present in the digital world and virtual reality. Now that can go overboard and certainly watching mass on TV or live stream is not ideal. It's what's ideal is to be there in person mm -hmm. and being able to receive the Holy Eucharist. But there is a, you know, good that, that came a connection. And I think you find now parishes and the diocese much more present um, in the digital arena. So I'd say that's one good thing that came from it. I think it also is a, a summons to us to really recognize the importance of not being laid back about the fact that we have a lot of people who don't go to church. So maybe it's a motive for, mm. for greater efforts at evangelization, not only through the digital uh, world, but also personally, you know, reaching out to people. I think there were opportunities, for example, of ministry to people who were suffering or are suffering during the pandemic and to their families. I mean, many opportunities to bring the love and compassion and mercy of Christ to people who um, were maybe more open to the gospel because of experiencing sickness or isolation or, or even mental issues of anxiety. It was opportunity to, to teach people to pray and to help people to deal with the, the aftermath. So yeah, I think there's always opportunities in the midst of, of difficulties or tragedies. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for another great episode. Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Have a great week. Happy Feast of St. Martin de Porres and St. Charles Borromeo. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.